It's good to be back here with you in this series. I gotta tell you, the text messages that I received after the scam thing went out were just hilarious, all right? They're like, man, I didn't know it was that bad. Why didn't you just ask, man? You don't have to like critically ask for gift cards and so on and so forth. Anyway, it was, uh, it was quite funny because there was a scam that happened a couple years ago where apparently I was asking for eBay gift cards. So it's just kind of funny how it keeps going. So uh, anyway, uh, this series that we're in um, really was birthed in uh, in my heart during the pandemic. Um, and, and the interesting thing about the pandemic is um, one of the things that 2020 did was it forced us to stop. It was a forced Sabbath on culture, wasn't it? Now, it was a revealing forced stop for us uh, and, and it did sure damaging effects as our economy uh, was forced to Sabbath. Um, to, it did damaging effects to some people's health. I don't want to make light of that, to relationships that, that came from that. But one thing I haven't heard anyone regretting is what it revealed to us spiritually. So I'm preaching this series to you uh, because I, just like you, need to wade into uh, the fray of the most consistently disobeyed part of the Bible in our culture, entering into the rest of God by having a regular Sabbath rhythm of rest. It's the most consistently disobeyed uh, commandment out of the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so over the next three weeks, I'll be exploring this theme of rest from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, along with some other passages of Scripture. So last week, Bob Cargo uh, from over at Perimeter Church, our sending church, uh, preached about the design of God's rest, that, that, that in fact, we were made for rest. It's not this fallen condition provision that, oh, now that they get tired, they have to rest. It was, it was before the fall ever entered into, uh, into uh, humanity. Um, so this week is about our resistance to rest. We resist the invitation to rest Therefore, it feels like resistance when we do rest. So here's our big idea for today, and I'll hit it a couple more times today, because I want you to, I want you to, I want you to, to feel what it's like when you're entering into rest, the threshold of entering into God's rest. God has provided, um, uh, the big idea today is this, remaining in the rest of God requires an active trust that feels like resistance. I think that was last week's. Uh, big idea, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> remaining in the rest of God requires an active trust that feels like resistance. So I want to set this up for you on a, on a pastoral level here. Even though I work on Sundays, um, the day is still the Sabbath for me and my family. People like me experience the Sabbath differently, but it doesn't change that reality. And it's this complicated tension to manage personally uh, and for my family, that's not easy, but it's a tension that must be intentionally managed. One, because the Lord calls us to it, and two, because we are embedding a certain worldview uh, and way of life into our children that they will carry on generationally. Just like you walk into Sundays with a certain generational impact that your parents pressed into you, right? And so we're doing the same thing with our children, not just us, but you are as well. Uh, enter... Sports. Amen? Anybody? Yeah. So my boys both get this amazing opportunity to play on a sponsored travel baseball team. It's an incredible opportunity. Uh, 
It will mean that we don't, we don't have to start with a new team every year playing in the rec baseball system, and that we can really start to build something and help them grow as young men and, and athletes. The problem about this team that we were invited to be on is one of the practices is on Sunday. You got it. So you know how this goes. Every single Sunday afternoon, and there's like a total of 40 boys on the team, and only two of them are mine, so I, I can't like, I can't shift this whole thing on my own. And so I agree, hey, this is an opportunity this past summer, uh, you, you know, that we had, and we try to squeeze it in. The whole time, I'm feeling uneasy about what it's doing to our rhythm and my convictions and honestly, the judgment of other people. Um, but I'm also uh, concerned um, that, that we're called to engage the world in a, in a winsome way. And so these, there are these two extremes or ditches that, you know, that I'm trying to avoid, that we're trying to avoid. On, on one hand, I can't expect the world to bend to my convictions, all right? That's the thing. I can't expect them to bend to my convictions. Two, um, we're called to winsomely engage the lost world and the culture around us in a distinctly Christian way. And sometimes we lean more toward one of those ditches. And God actually calls us to both, right? If we're in one ditch, we're in a bad spot. And so it's this tension. And these, you know, these guys in the Bible uh, who led the Jewish community called the Pharisees, they consistently got it wrong, right, in Jesus' day. They had the Sabbath on the calendar, but they didn't have it in their hearts, right? Uh, and so... You know, Jesus consistently rebukes them, and, and the Gentiles, on the other hand, consistently got it wrong too, because nothing was sacred for them. These two ditches existed in Jesus' day, and they exist in ours. And Jesus once said this to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that passage is helpful to us because it warns us of the danger of legalism. It warns us of the danger of the ditch that the Pharisees in, and maybe some of us are in that ditch, right? Um, but it's not a free pass to blow through the commandment. And I think today it's almost untraceable in our culture. Like when I was a kid, I can remember some things being closed on Sundays. That's no longer the case, right? It's Vegas 24-7 all the time. That's what the culture's like now. So we can't expect the culture to throw us a bone and help us out on the Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus is freeing us up, friends, to get more, not less, out of the Sabbath by taking it to our hearts. This is what he consistently does with the law of God in the scriptures, right? Uh, he's, he's consistently taking the Ten Commandments, not just to our behaviors, but to our hearts. So back to my situation here. I'm playing baseball on Sunday afternoons as a pastor telling you guys to take a Sabbath, right? Uh, and so, you know, I begin to pray about it, and I got invited to coach one of the teams, and as quickly as I could, we started changing that weekend practice to Saturdays instead of Sundays this winter, but then we, we sacrificed something else, right? We sacrificed the sweetness of our family time that we have on Saturdays. But guess what? In this next season of life, the enemy will come to you and he will come to I, and, and, and in some other way, he will try to keep us from entering into the Sabbath rest that the Lord desires to give to us. You know, maybe, maybe Megan and I are the only ones in this boat that struggle to kind of figure this out. Uh, if this is cut and dry for you, I would welcome uh, suggestions on that, um, but I don't think that it is. I think it's a struggle for all of us that we don't often talk about. It's, it's never been that easy for my family and I because we want to seek to winsomely engage 
the world in a distinctly Christian way, and it's just hard to do in a lost and fallen world. The best way I've come to experience this is that every time we enter in and trust the Lord, it feels like resistance. And so today what I want to do is I want to, I want to invite you into the messy middle, the fray, right, um, where we learn as a missional 21st century American church to actually experience the rest of God together in a sustainable way. And what I long to become is a church that is fighting this fight together, resisting the urge to judge one another like the Pharisees did back in Jesus' day, but also believing God wants to give us so much more of his rest as we trust him together. So I'm going to remind you of this big idea together, and then we're going to dig into Hebrews 3. Remaining in the rest of God requires an active trust that feels like resistance. So so why does it feel like resistance? Because we have quite a history of resistance in our history as God's people. Let me just remind you maybe of Jeremiah 6, if you've never read that before. There was a a season of time where um, uh, the the Israelites were were in Jerusalem, and they were kind of warned about uh, how hardened their hearts had gotten toward God's word. They were complacent. They had this city. They had this temple. They had the presence of God yet they had disobedient hearts. And here's what Jeremiah 6 says. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Sounds great, doesn't it? Look for the ancient paths, walk in the way of the Lord, obey God's word. That's how we walk in the way of the Lord. And he says, and find rest for your souls if you do that. But they said, we will not walk in it. And friends, we've been saying it ever since then, haven't we? I want to walk in the ancient path where the good way is with you, where the good shepherd leads us and cares for us. But why is it so hard? Why will we not walk in it? That's that's what I want us to uncover today, why it's so difficult for us to enter into the rest that God gives us. So two things that I want to, kind of two big points today as we look at Hebrews 3. I want to look at the pattern of resistance against entering God's rest. And secondly, I want to look at the pursuit of rest in our resistance against the world. So let's look at this pattern of resistance against God's rest. I think one of the issues um, we have about observing the fourth commandment, the commandment to observe the, the Sabbath day, is that we think too narrowly about the Sabbath day by only thinking about not working on on Sundays. I think we've been conditioned to think that the best thing about the Sabbath is a nap after we eat grandma's pot pie, right? Or or whatever that frame is for you. That's what we think, okay, I'm not gonna work today, so I'm just gonna rest, right? And don't get me wrong, your Sabbath day, your rhythm may include eating grandma's pot pie and falling asleep on her couch. I don't know, right? But it is much, much more than that, friends, and I don't want us to narrowly focus in on that and miss what God has for us. Sabbath rest is the main thing that God has made you for. It's what eternity with him will be like. And all of our instances today are a foretaste of our eternity with our Father in heaven through the work of Jesus. St. Augustine said this back in the fourth century. He he said, you have made, and this is in his work Confessions. It's just an amazing work where he writes about his life. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Rest, 
the definition of it is to be whole with God, right? That's what, that's what the scriptures are leading us to. We're at rest. We're, when we're at rest, we're secure in our relationship with him, and we're free from the assaults of the enemy that we've actually earned through our unbelief. So what's this pattern of, of, of resistance? It's a pattern of unbelief in the history of God's people. Here's what Hebrews 3, starting in chapter, or st- chapter 3, starting in verse 7, talks about. And he's quoting Psalm 95 as he gets into this. I'm going to read the first uh, few verses here, and we'll, we'll unpack it. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. That Jeremiah 16, right? We won't walk in it. And as I swore in my wrath, the Lord says, they shall not enter my rest. You know, one of the things we see here is that all rest belongs to God. And we rest because we belong to God. The writer of Hebrews is using Psalm 95 as a reference to talk about the history of resistance and and the hardening that God's people have always been prone to in our hearts. He refers back to this event of the Exodus, this divine deliverance from captivity that God's people experienced. In the Exodus, the rest being offered by faith to be received by God's people in an act of trust in God was the promised land of Canaan. See, God's people had never had a home in this earth up until this point. No land, no rest from the agony of constantly being surrounded by their enemies. Now, Pharaoh, the leader of of Egypt, had enslaved Israel. You know, they're they're, they're learning to worship in in this instance that we're going to look at. They're learning to worship the Lord, Yahweh, even while they're enslaved. In fact, their circumstances uh, and their resistance is worship, right? Um, so Pharaoh is, is, because he has a very hard heart and he doesn't follow the Lord, um, he, sees, he sees this as basically a slothful exercise and, and laziness that, that he's provided for them, they're enslaved to him, and here they are, they wanna take a day off, right? They wanna nap, on grandma's couch after they eat the Popeye, right? And, they're, they're, and he says, no, here's, here's what he says uh, to them. So, so Moses and Aaron, who are the leaders of the Israelites as they're enslaved to Egypt, um, you know, have this violation of their con- conscience. They, they're not able to rest the way God has called them to rest. And so they boldly approach Pharaoh, whom, whom they're enslaved to. And they say this in Exodus 3, or sorry, Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Then they, Moses and Aaron, said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Now, This is how Pharaoh views the promise of rest. He mocks it, right? When the the world is all that there is, we cannot afford to enter his rest through worship. Friends, this is how...
This is how the systems of this world view your rest. And this is why it's one of the most countercultural acts of obedience that you can enter into. This is why it feels like resistance every time you choose to relax in the Lord's presence in this chaotic and this restless world. The world in its many forms says, get back to your burden and go prove yourself. The world says what Pharaoh says to, to Israel. In our rest, what does Jesus say? He says, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. It's gonna be chaotic. It's gonna be restless. But you've gotta trust me because I've overcome the world. It's resistance every single time, every single week, every single moment that you enter in, it feels like resistance. So what happens next to Israel? Well, the Lord delivers Israel because they trust him through a series of 10 plagues to such a degree where the Pharaoh actually sends them out of Egypt, not just for three days, but forever, right? Because they trust him in this moment. He doesn't give them three days relief, but he sets them free. He parts the Red Sea. He floods the Pharaoh's army that's on their trail. He leads the people with a cloud by day and a fire by night, and he gives them manna to eat and water from the rock. He is with them, and he's leading them because they are trusting him. And then they're less than a year into that pilgrimage, and they're on the precipice of entering rest, that promised land of Canaan, but there's only one small problem. The land of Canaan is occupied by the Amalekites and the Canaanites, right? So they send 12 men from each of the 12 tribes to spy out the land, to investigate it. And they send them away for 40 days and they say, go tell us what it's like there. Go tell us about this land that God wants to give us. And, and this is the, the report. The cities are huge, the people are giants, the land is lush, right? And it doesn't seem like there's any way that this land, this rest that God is promising us will ever be our inheritance, will ever be ours. And all 12 of these guys agree uh, on the report. But there's only two of them that can see through the giants of this world to the giant promise of God, right? It's only Joshua and Caleb that believe that the Lord is gonna bring them up out of this land and deliver it to them. And here's how everyone else responds except Joshua and Caleb. This is number four, Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raises a loud cry, right? They're, they can see the promise. This is like just over there. And they've come back, the, the, you know, the, the 12 spies have come back and they're, they're responding to the report. All the congregation raises this loud cry and they weep all night long. And all the people of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron, right? The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. We would rather die than be out here is what they're saying uh, with, a, with the hand of God on our lives. Or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Less than a year a year that was full of God's presence, full of God's rest, full of miraculous interventions from the Lord God, and they would get rather go back to Egypt and be enslaved. Friends, this is what life in this world does to us. This is the pattern. We see God move, and we deny him with our lives. And it's interesting, right? 
Because it seems like it takes less than 40 days to forget the promises of God and our recollection of his faithfulness to us in the Bible. I mean, that's how long the spies were gone. That's how long Moses was on the mount when he comes down and Aaron and the Israelites have made a golden calf. That's how long Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, 40 days to forget the God of deliverance. Israel, they started well and, and that generation finished very poorly. And what were the consequences of them not entering into the rest of God through functionally trusting what God said? Well, they were getting ready, instead of getting ready to enter the promised land through some kind of miraculous intervention from God, they spend another 40, you like how I just kept going? They spend another 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and, and so that, that was the consequences of them. And only Joshua and Caleb and their families enter into the promised land. This isn't about causing anyone to doubt the legitimacy of our salvation when he says they, they will not, I swear they will not enter my rest. This isn't about any of that. This is about taking advantage of the benefits of the Lord and what he's called us to. So my question is this as we get into this pursuit of rest, is are we experiencing the genuine relief that the gospel brings this side of heaven? The Lord wants to give you moments of relief every single week and every single day to enter into his rest before we actually get there. What if God wanted to give each of us relief and rest today? Would we be willing to follow, listen, and obey? So let's, let's keep reading in Hebrews 3 here. Let's look at this pursuit of rest in our resistance against the world. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every single day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your voice, or do not harden uh, your heart, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's a key sentence for us, right? They were unable to enter the rest and relief of the Lord's presence and the benefits of knowing God because of unbelief. Chapter four goes on to say this, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's very interesting. So throughout Hebrews three and four, there are warnings extended to us that are related to us entering the benefit of rest through knowing our Lord. And the most dangerous thing lurking in us is an unbelieving heart because it will lead us to live like unbelievers, right? And not just in these overtly obvious ways that we think about, oh man, this guy blew it really in a huge way, right? It's in these subtle ways, like not believing that, the God, that God will deliver you, right? Not believing that the Lord will take you into the promised land like Israel. But it's, you know, in these subtleties as well. So then we suffer the consequences of unbelief just like Israel did when we don't obey. And the Bible says 
Basically, here's the recipe for a hard and callous heart against the Lord. Well, so what's the recipe? Here we go. You like that recipe card? That's great. All right, so if you're looking today for a hard and callous heart, I'm gonna tell you exactly how to get it, all right? It goes like this. First thing is this, is you hear the Holy Spirit speak through the word. So this is any of us in here, any of us in a Bible preaching church, right? You hear the Holy Spirit speak because the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. We know that. He, he solidifies it in our heart. He makes it come alive. So then when we hear God's word, we talk about this often at New City, we hear God's word, it convicts our hearts because the Lord gave us the law to expose us as a mirror, right? To show us the ways that are not in line with him. So we see our disobedient sin, and this is, this is common for every believer on the face of the planet, right? We hear God's word, we're convicted of sin. Now the question is, uh, you know, what we do next with that. Um, if you want a hardened, callous heart, here's what you do. You do nothing about what God shows you when you read his word, when you hear the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then you allow time to pass, knowing God's word on one hand, but still living in sin on the other. You know, and we do this by minimizing our sin and managing our sin. Those are the ways that we hold on to sin and we don't take them to the Lord. And these are the devil's greatest threats uh, that he uses against confidence in the gospel in this world. Because that's what we're looking for. That's what people that are at rest in the Lord have a growing confidence in God through the gospel. That's what it means to be growing up in Christ is our confidence in what he's done is growing. So as you allow time to pass and you do nothing about your sin, what begins to happen is you start to lose confidence in the gospel. You start to be rattled by the threats of the enemy. You start to believe more and more lies. You start to isolate yourself more and more from authentic Christian community. And before you know it, you're enduring the consequences of unbelief. Now, this has happened to all of us, right? I mean, this is a kind of a cycle for us, right? But I think typically the, the degree to which we feel the consequences of sin is usually correlated to the degree to which we've lived in unbelief, right? <clears throat> this is why the scriptures pretty consistently call us to repent early and often, right? All, like Martin Luther said in the first of the 95 Theses, all of life is a life of repentance, right? It, that R word is not a dirty word for Christians, right? It's a lifeline for us. And so, um, but I know none of you want a hardened callous heart. I just wanted to show you just, you know, just for those people out there, okay? So just keep that, tuck that in your recipe box. But that's what happens when you get a hardened callous heart. That's, that's what we've done. We've heard God's word and we've done nothing about our sin as we've been convicted. But notice I didn't say lose your salvation in this. Because I think you can read through the book of Hebrews and you can say, oh, I don't know about this. It seems like you can kind of lose this thing, especially when you get into Hebrews chapter six. I don't think he's talking about that because we can't lose something that we didn't earn in the first place, right? It's a gift. But the Bible does not say <laughs> once saved, always saved. It doesn't say that anywhere. It says those who are saved finish the race as the Holy Spirit carries them along. He is the one that carries us to rest but we stay connected to the rest through hearing his word and responding to it by faith. But Hebrews says, you know, I'm not saying you lose your salvation. I'm saying you lose your confidence in the gospel. And when we lose our confidence in the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, we lose the benefit of the gospel. We lose the assurance of our salvation that enables us to experience the rest of God. We can't grow unless we know we're secure, church. And so this is what the book of Hebrews is, is telling us about. All of rest is God's rest. 
He's the one that's at rest. He's been at rest since he created the world. And he's the one that sent Jesus to bring us and usher us into his rest in this chaotic world. So I want to I close this by looking at three very practical elements of this pursuit. We could say more here, but I'm just pulled a few out of Hebrews 3. So these are elements of pursuing confidence in the gospel. Like, and they're going to feel like resistance, okay? Uh, the first one is this. The writer of Hebrews says, pay attention to your own heart. This is the primary thing that you can do because from it, you know, the well, it's the wellspring of life. Everything flows from the heart. Pay attention to your heart. Hebrews 3, 12 says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The most important thing that you can do is to pray that prayer, that David prayer, search me and know me, God, Right? If there, be, if there be any unbelieving way in me, reveal that to me so that I can walk in the way of everlasting. Now, we could talk about all kinds of ways to grow up in the gospel, but the most basic understanding of gospel growth relates to not just the stated belief in the gospel, hey, I believe death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, I believe it, but also a functional trust that shows up in how we live our lives. I love what R. Kent Hughes wrote about this in his commentary to the Hebrews. I'm gonna walk through it slowly here. It says this. Belief, which is the, the mental acceptance of a fact is true, will simply not bring rest to any soul. Listen to this next line. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world will not give us rest. Okay. Just acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world will not give us rest. This is why some of us in this room today are confounded on the fact that we have a stated belief, but we have no rest in our lives. This is why the world, this is why, this is why people deconstruct away from Christianity, right? Because they, they said they believe something and they haven't got the benefits of the gospel. So what will? Trust in him is what gives rest to our souls. So not just acknowledgement, not just a rational acknowledgement, but a, but a visceral trust that shows up in how we live our lives. Trust brings rest, says Alexander McLaren, because it sweeps away as the north wind does the banded clouds on the horizon, all the deepest causes of unrest. So what are we trusting? What's the object of our trust? What's the, what's the functionality of our trust? First, we're trusting in Christ's sacrificial death that begins our rest by giving us rest from the burden of the guilt of our sins and a gnawing conscience. Second, trust in his character as an almighty God and a loving savior that gives us rest as we place our burdens on him. We're gonna talk about that in coming weeks. Just as a child sleeps so well, sometimes, in his parents' arms, so we rest in God. The principle is so simple. The more trust, the more rest. So as we, as we think about that, how is your own heart this morning, friend? Is it at rest in what God has done for you? In my, in my experience, when our interior life is collapsing because we're not at rest in Jesus and what he's done for us, here's what we do. We try to accumulate circumstances and situations that we can control to convince us that we're at rest. 
And we just, we just scour to find as many, we grasp as many things that we can control to try to convince our hearts that we're at rest and we're collapsing on the inside. We hyper-focus on our kids' behavior. We try to over, we, we overwork to prove ourselves to our bosses and we desperately try to serve people to get them to love us, but we are not at rest. How is your own heart responding to the gift of the gospel today? What does the rest that God offers in the gospel do for your soul today? Pay attention to your own heart, the writer of Hebrews says. Second thing is this. It not only affects you personally, but the impact of your Christian community. Exhort one another every day, is what the writer of Hebrews says. Verses three through 15, 13 through 15 rather. But exhort one another every day. Like he's really specific on how this is supposed to work out. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the writer of Hebrews is explicit time and time again in reminding us of the essential nature of authentic Christian community. In, in chapter 10, he'll say, you know, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. It's, it's threaded throughout the whole book of Hebrews. It's, and he's not talking about pretentious niceties, but rather raw fellowship that allows us to get in one another's grills and one another's faces with the gritty nature of our flawed human condition coupled with the explosive power of the gospel. That's the recipe for transformation right there. When we actually share who we really are, not who we hope to be, with those that we've entrusted our souls to, to exhort us, to encourage us along on this path of the Christian journey. So, so how, do we, how do we do this, right? To exhort one another, the writer of Hebrews says, you have to remember first where Jesus found you. He says, look back to your original confidence in the gospel and never forget it. Never move past that childlike faith. This is one of the reasons why I love being around new believers, right? New believers have this childlike faith that, that I think when we're being pharisaical, we look down upon, we're like, oh, they don't even know John 3.16 yet, right? But when we're in a good spot, we're like, wow. We look at them like Jesus did the kids when they came to him, just trusted him. The writer of Hebrews says we've got to come back to that if we're going to grow up in the gospel, we have to remember where Jesus found us. We're never going to outgrow the basic tenets of the gospel. Tim Keller said, you know, the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian faith, it's the A to Z, right? So we gotta hold fast the original confidence. And if your study of scripture in Christian community is leading you past the gospel, friends, we're in really dangerous water. Exhort that he's talking about here is another word for encourage. It's mostly a positive word that can be strong at times, right? There are times, as Jude says, you gotta snatch people out of the fire. That's exhorting them. That's going after them because you love them so much. So what would it mean for you today out of your growing confidence in the gospel because you're paying attention to your own heart first to offer that confidence to others in their struggles? What would, that, what would that look like for you today to not just allow your friends, your family workers, those that you share life with to just walk in disobedience? 
What would it look like, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love to one another when brothers and sisters are drifting toward unbelief? To speak kind things or to speak kind things to those who you share life with that would embolden their joy, to to call out their glory, to call out their joy, to call out the good things that you see God doing in their life so that we can embolden confidence in what God has done. And we do all of this by remembering what it's like to be lost and to be found in Jesus and never getting past that. The third thing is this, to boldly trust God through resisting the world that lurks within. Hebrews 4, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as them, but there was a difference. The message they heard did not benefit them. It didn't lead them to rest. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what I'm going to share right now is for those of you that just say this, Pastor, just tell me what to do. I just want confidence in you. Just tell me what to do. I'm ready for a checklist. Tell me what to do. I'm gonna tell you three things. I'm gonna tell you three things that we do every single week that, that tend to shape and form a liturgy of sorts that tend to shape and form and help your confidence in Jesus grow as the world lurks within us. <clears throat> and I wanna remind you of these you know, three disciplines that we pursue every week. The first one is this, keeping the Sabbath. I know it's, we've been talking about it last week, but it's really hard. Is your heart anxious? The Lord says, say no to the world. Choose to cheat the world by resisting the rat race. Simply put, ask yourself this question, do I really keep the Sabbath? If I'm, if I'm anxious and I don't want to be anxious, I want to grow up in the gospel, the first question to ask, do I keep the Sabbath? Do I keep it? It's a simple kind of yes or no question. Do I, to the best of my ability, do I keep the Sabbath day? Friends, if you're blowing through the Sabbath, you're going to have an anxious heart. There's no way around it. We can't have our cake and eat it too, right? I mean, so the Sabbath will not be a priority to people who have not found rest in God. And sadly, this is so many Christians in our culture today. And you can even look like you're resting in Christ, but be absolutely riddled with anxiety on the inside. The rest that God intends to give to us is an inside-out kind of rest. And when we stop... It forces us to come face-to-face with the challenging truth that it takes a different kind of effort to develop an interior life that is connected deeply to our maker. It takes a different kind of work, friends. And when we resist the world every time, we take a 24-hour period of day, a huge chunk of our week, and we say no. What it does is it resets us. It reminds us who God is and what he's done. The second thing is this, and Brandon kind of already mentioned this today. Tithing. Are you like me and you struggle to not fall into the worldview of America, which is production, consumption, and accumulation that leads to happiness? That's the worldview of everybody around us. Production, consumption, and accumulation will lead to happiness. And you guys know, you've looked at the stats of people who win the lottery, even though you wanted to. um, Their lives are miserable, right? God says this is nothing new. It's always been this way. This is why my people give generously. It resets our souls. It feels like resistance. Simply put, a question for you to ask the Lord, just between you and him, do I tithe? Not only do I give a huge part of my week away to the Lord to focus and build that interior life, but do I give a huge part of the provision that he's entrusted with me back to him? 
It's a simple kind of yes or no question that's between you and the Lord. And, and if I don't, how can I expect to have growing confidence in the provision of God's rest in the gospel? If I'm not functionally trusting what God has given to me, how can I expect to trust in the rest that he's promised to me? I've never met a Christian who gives generously and sacrificially who does not have a growing confidence in the gospel. Now, the third thing is this, the Lord's table. This is another way that we come every single week and we seek to grow in our trust of the Lord. Every single week, God invites us to this table to consider what we've done with the gospel this week. See, at the table, we're invited to resist and to starve our pride through humbly confessing our sin and boldly clinging to Jesus. The question is this, do you put the blood to work every, life in your, every, every week in your life, or do you simply just come up and routinely take the meal? Do you put the blood to work in your life? Because this is an active table that seeks to grow your confidence in the gospel. The more trust in the blood, the more rest in the soul, friends. Hey, listen, I know it's hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear too. It feels like resistance in this world, but the Lord wants to give you more than you could ever imagine, even this side of heaven. And I want that for you, and I want that for me. So let's pray together, and let's take this table maybe a different way this week, okay? Let's pray. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.